That was great, that. Did anyone, who, who had the butternut soup? That was amazing, wasn't it? Whoever made that, thank you. That was delicious. As I've been walking on, on this path, as I say, I've been a believer for, for 31 years. Uh, I've been walking this path of, of sonship since about 2005. And I begin to understand that a lot of my theology, a lot of my doctrine, a lot of my beliefs about God... <laughs> it wasn't that bad. I've only just begun. <laughs> but a lot of, a lot of what I believed and my concept of God was developed out of what we see happening in the garden. I think it's what most of Christianity is based upon. What happened in the garden where the man sins and God punishes him. And so we have this theology that God punishes the sinner. That Jesus went to the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice to take the punishment that you deserve from God. I don't believe that anymore because I don't think that's what happened in the garden. And we're going to look at the garden for a time. don't know how long it will take us. Um, certainly before the coffee and cake break. Don't worry, you won't miss coffee and cake. So just to allay your fears in that score, coffee and cake will still proceed. <laughs> but all of my understanding of God I viewed through that prism of the angry God who punishes the sinner. And what I'm discovering in this revelation as I relate to him, as I begin to become intimate with God, who is actually Father, I'm discovering that he is not like that. And so I began to look at the scriptures and say, well, where did we get this idea from? And is it the correct view? I've come to the conclusion that we got it from a wrong interpretation of the Bible. And no, it's not true. And so we, we begin in Genesis with creation. You know, God is there, everything is formless and void. So this is this period before the foundations of the earth that Paul writes about. He says, before the foundations of the earth, he chose you in Christ to be placed into sonship. And it was in that period of darkness and void. And he conceived you in his own heart in love and beauty. And then he designed a world for you to live in. And he said, let there be light. And there was light. And then he said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. Let it be gathered under the sky in one place. Let the dry ground appear. And it was so. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation. And it was so. Then he said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from night. Let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And it was so. God said, let the water team with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. And it was so. And God saw that it was good. So the world was prepared. For those of us who had been conceived in his heart before the foundations of the earth. 
And then God said this, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. It's interesting, isn't it? God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. You know this whole thing about dominion and authority, it's not just a masculine thing. It was given to the feminine and the masculine. It was given to the male and the female in partnership. And I wonder if some of the problems we have in the world is because we're not working in that partnership. That somehow men stupidly think that they're the boss. When we portray masculinity as the authority, we perfectly demonstrate the fallenness of man. See, God describes this battle of the sexes between the male and the female. In fact, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll come back to that. Hold on to that thought. In Genesis 2, we read that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being. It's interesting, isn't it? Why was Adam not made first? If he was conceived and we were thought of and birthed in our father's heart before the foundations of the earth, why was he not created before the earth? Before the creatures that move along the ground and all of the livestock and everything else? I think it's for one, one very good reason. When the man is created, he's this lifeless form on the ground made out of the dust. And the father breathes into his nostrils. Now, Mike, do you think I could breathe into your nostrils from here? I would need to get up really close, wouldn't I? You know, I'd need to come really, I'd need to come really right up here in order to breathe into your nostrils. And so, when Adam's this lifeless form on the ground... I don't know what it looked like because I don't know if God takes corporeal form at any time. But he had to get close up to Adam to breathe into his nostrils. I wonder how long it took for Adam to become a living soul. Split second? A year? A few minutes? I think it was almost like that. Split second. And he opens his eyes. And looking into his face is all of the love that fills the universe, focused on him. And when he opened his eyes, God had already finished the work of creation. Adam never knew what it was to have a working father. Adam was birthed into God's rest. I believe Jesus lived out of the place of rest. He came out of the Father's bosom, that place of rest, and lived his life out of that, just like Adam did. It's one of the reasons why Jesus is called the last man or the second Adam. I mean, why would his Father not want him to see all of his glorious creative power at work? Can you imagine what that would be like to see the universe unfolding? 
But Adam didn't see any of that. His first conscious moment, his first sensory input was opening his eyes and love gazing upon him. That's what we were created for. Can I have that water up, Alistair? Um, He was created for love, just as you and I were. And that love was experienced in the Father's rest. Hmm. That impartation of life, that there was actually an impartation of something of God himself. The, the word for breath is ruach, which is also the word that we translate as Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of God, the ruach of God. And so God imparts from the very beginning. See, it's always his plan to put his spirit in us. That wasn't some secondary thought because the fall ruined everything. It was always his plan to put his spirit in us. And Adam lived in the garden, walking with his father. I think it's interesting that he was created in the image of God. As far as we can see, nothing else was in the image of God. None of the animals, none of the... I don't know about the origins of angels, but I assume if the angels were made in his image, we would know that. And so there's something very unique about mankind. Something that that causes us to have a, a, a special place in the heart of God and in the affections of our Father. Because we reflect Him. I think it's why the devil hates mankind so much. Because it reminds him of what he lost. You know, we read in, in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, we read about Satan and his origins and his fall from heaven. And we read that he's put out of God's presence because he corrupted his wisdom on account of his beauty. And every time he looks at mankind, he sees the image of God and it enrages him. That's the real war against mankind. To destroy the image of God. And so Adam just lives the life of a son with his father. He's not a creature to a creator. He's not a servant to a master. Luke is very clear when he traces the genealogy of Jesus. And we read down to Luke chapter 3 verse 38. It just says, Adam, the son of God. Not the creation of God, not he's the son of God. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before, that verse. See, that was his intention for mankind, that we would live as sons and daughters. And so, it's not that he created a creature, but he imparted something of the life that's in him into a man, because that's what a father does. A father is someone who gives life, who imparts life. And who not only imparts life at conception, but continues to impart life throughout the years of that child's existence. Anyone can be a, biologically be a, a dad. But actually it's only those who continue to impart life into their offspring who are truly fathers. 
And our Father sustains all things. He continues to impart life to us. And so Adam lived in that environment where he just trusted his father. Out of, because out of the relationship with his father, he knew safety, he knew provision, he knew comfort, everything else. Father provided him also with companionship in, in his wife. And so he trusted him. Why would he not? Every good thing, James says, comes from the Father of lights. Every good gift. And so Adam just walked in this trust relationship as a son with his father. It seems that God would come into the garden and, and they would walk together. I don't know what they talked about. But Father would just be affirming him, loving him, imparting something of the wisdom and, and love that he has in his own heart into his son. And Adam just learned to trust him. I wonder how long that went on for. A few weeks or months, years, a couple of centuries maybe. We, we don't know. It, for us it's a few verses. But those few verses might cover a few centuries in the garden. And then we're introduced to something called the serpent. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now when God told Adam about the tree, he didn't say you shouldn't touch it. He just said, don't eat from it. But the serpent says to her, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. It's interesting, isn't it? He wasn't somewhere else on the other side of the garden or wherever. He was, the Hebrew actually says her husband who was at her elbow. I wonder why he didn't stop her. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So we have this personality called the serpent. And it's not a good translation because we now have this portrayal of a, a snake in the garden. Now, I, I don't know, but I've never met any talking snakes. You may have been more fortunate than me, I don't know. But actually this word serpent, it means one who hisses. And it speaks of someone who beguiles through conjuring or deceit. It can also mean one who shines. And so we have the description of Satan in, in the Old Testament as one who is covered in, in dazzling jewels of beryl and chrysolite and emeralds and all kinds of things. So we have this dazzling creature who whispers beguiling lies and almost magically beguiles the woman. Through, through his deceit. And he talks them into eating the fruit from the tree. And when they do, their eyes are opened. Now I've always puzzled over that because they can already see. 
You know, the woman sees that the fruit is pleasing to the eye. And good for food and good for gaining wisdom. So what does it mean? What, what did it mean that their eyes were opened? I believe it's talking about the eyes of understanding, the eyes of judgment. You see, they previously lived in a heart-to-heart relationship with their father. Everything flowed at a heart level. I'm not saying their minds were not involved. They were. But I believe that what happened here is the eyes of their heart became darkened. They begin to see everything from a different perspective. A skewed perspective, you see, because they began to walk in a corrupted wisdom. They did not follow the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God said, do not eat this fruit because it will bring sorrow and death. But they listened and said to the wisdom that Satan corrupted on account of his beauty. Ezekiel tells us that's what happened. So he came with his corrupted wisdom and he whispered in in their ear, you'll become like God. If you just eat this, you will become just like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. Well, they had not known that because all they knew was goodness. There was no evil. There was only goodness in their experience. And they thought, goodness and evil? What is that? And so the eyes of their heart began to be darkened. The eyes of their understanding began to open. That's why Paul prays in Ephesians. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Why do the eyes of our hearts need need to be enlightened? Well, because they've been darkened. And now he's saying, I pray that those eyes would no longer be darkened, but they would be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And so rather than following this godly wisdom, they followed this corrupted wisdom of, of Satan. And they began to live a life that judged between right and wrong, good and bad, black and white. And you see that in life, don't you? Everything is based upon what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. But we've discovered that what is right and wrong, what's good and bad is arbitrary, depending on who's deciding the good and the bad. You know, for most of us here, for all of us here, paedophilia is horrific, but not a paedophile. It's just love. What's wrong with love? You see the different standards of right and wrong in this world? Because it comes out of a corrupted wisdom, out of eating the fruit of the wrong tree. The Lord had said to the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And I wonder if, you know, the Lord says this to the man and the man thinks, that's right, okay, I get that. And then he, he walks away and then he stops. Um, question? What does die mean? No, but but this is what Adam's thinking. Adam's thinking, well, what does die mean? He's never seen death. So he has no idea what God's talking about. It's more than just separation from God, actually. And so he, he... 
yeah, God said you'll die, but, well, whatever that is. And so he eats the fruit. His eyes begin to open. The corrupted wisdom is beginning to take effect upon them. Because then the man and his wife hear the sound of the Lord God as he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now normally, the Lord would come walking in the cool of the day and Adam would run to him and spend time with him. Now, I'm using a little bit of poetic license here because it's not spelled out like that in Scripture. But I imagine that that was the experience of walking with God. In that time, that's the time when he would come out. He would stop whatever work he was doing in the garden and he would come and walk with his father and enjoy his company. Because that's why God came walking in the garden. He just enjoyed his son's company. It wasn't to give him commands or instructions for how he should look after the animals. He was just enjoying his company. But this day, when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. The Lord called out to him and said, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He had never done this before, as far as we can see. He'd never been afraid of his father before. He'd never hidden from his father before. I mean, how how can you hide from God? His eyes are everywhere. (laughs) It's a really rubbish game of hide and seek, isn't it? (laughs) I can see you. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And so God is giving the man a chance to put things right. He's given him a chance to own up. Instead of owning up and repenting, what does Adam do? He said, well, it's like this, God. I guess it's really your fault. Because it's the woman that you put here. She, just, she gave me some fruit and I ate it. It's kind of like, you know, the doorbell goes and, and the man goes to the door and opens the door and it's a plumber. He says, ah, you've got a leaking tap? Yeah, I went, I'll just go and get my wife. <laughs> Somebody's laughing like they know what that means. <laughs> and so there are consequences of, of this... There's gender division. I wonder what the woman felt like. She wasn't called Eve at this point. I wonder what she felt like when the man turned around and said, she did it. And it's your fault because you put her here. Oh, what did that do to her heart? I mean, they were one. They even shared a name. He was Ish and she was Isha. And suddenly, the man is distancing himself from his wife and saying, It's all on her shoulders. Wow. And she says, Will the serpent deceive me and I ate? And so the Lord said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. That doesn't mean wriggling like a snake. It just means you'll taste, you taste defeat. This is your own downfall here. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband that he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so Satan is cursed. This being is cursed. And he's saying, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to set the woman on you. This is not Satan becoming the woman's enemy. This is the woman becoming his enemy. He's saying femininity is the real strength, the real power. And the reason he says that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, he's saying this is what death looks like. He's spelling out what has changed. He's saying because you have done this, your relationship changes now. No longer will you stand as equals, but instead you will... Your desire for relationship, that's what the feminine is. The femininity is all about relationship. Masculinity, broken masculinity is about conquering. And so the broken masculine seeks to dominate. And God says, because of your desire for relationship, you will allow this conquering aspect of your husband to dominate you. He's not saying this because this is the marriage mandate. He's saying this because this is a change in their relationship and their status. And so for those of us who advocate male authority, we perfectly demonstrate the fallenness of man. If we are being redeemed from all of the empty ways of our old life, then we should be getting redeemed from the emptiness of broken gender relationships, which includes this ridiculous idea of male domination. Male authority, men being the boss, men being more suited to leadership. David Poston wrote a book about that and it's disgusting. Uh, I might go in, I might, yeah, let me do it very quickly. This whole idea of men submit to your, you know, wives submit to your husbands. If you understand what the word submission means in Greek, it's not what we understand in English, where it means to come under someone. It began, the Greek language began life as a military language. When Alexander began to conquer all of Greece, he brought together um, all of the different tribes into an army, but they all spoke different dialects. And so they created something called Koine Greek, which is, what, which is the Greek that the New Testament is written in. And the word... Oh, I've forgotten the word now. Um, let me, the Greek word um, for submit and submission is... Oh, I've forgotten the word. But anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll get it. It's, I've got it in here somewhere. Um, but it means actually to come alongside in cooperation with. It means to help to carry a burden, to share a load, to, to share responsibility. And so it makes sense then when the scripture says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's saying, you know, guys, come together, cooperate together. Wives, submit to your husbands. He's... 
you have to understand that the New Testament was written in a particular context to address particular issues that churches were facing. It's not a general, this is the gospel kind of writing. It's saying, you have an issue in your church, and I, Paul the Apostle, am I'm writing to address this issue with you. And one of these issues is, women are getting saved, and saying to the husbands, well, I'm not, I'm not going to do what you want, I'm not going to worship your household gods, and you can go and do what you want with your goddess Diana, and all of that stuff. And Paul and, Paul and Peter are saying, listen ladies, cooperate with your husbands, come alongside them and bear the responsibility, and, and shoulder the, the weight of, of family. And by so doing, you may win them to Christ without words. It's interesting because we, we add things into the scriptures. So in Peter, where Peter says, you know, wives, submit to your husbands. And then he says, husbands, likewise, as you live in uh, tenderness or whatever it is with your wife, as the weaker partner. The Greek doesn't say that. The Greek just says this. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, likewise to your wives. But we've inserted something in there to change the meaning. It's interesting, isn't it? And so we've created a whole doctrine out of the fall. Where we say that men are the boss, women are under, should be under men, and women should never be above men and never lead men and all of that kind of stuff. I, I had a friend who went to a church somewhere in Wales, and she could do alpha and all that kind of stuff, and, and there were men there who would sit under her teaching, but if they got saved, she was no longer allowed to teach them. Well, because they're Christian men, they're above her. They're the boss. They're the authority now. When we take that position in our churches and in our, our organizations and everything else, we are perfectly demonstrating the fallenness of man. I won't go into the whole headship thing because I'm I'm get, I'm, I get off course. But what's happening here in Genesis chapter 3 is that God is explaining this is what death looks like. And he's spelling it out because it spells out a change in their circumstances. And he's saying it looks like gender conflict. It looks like pain in childbirth. It looks like thorns and thistles growing out of the ground. It looks like sweat of your brow to grow food. And he does something remarkable. You see, Adam and his wife put on fig leaves. And they go, they put on the green fig leaves, hide in the green trees, and it's like, I'm blending in. Nothing wrong here, I fit in, I'm okay. You know, it's their own, it's their own attempt at becoming acceptable. I think we, we all do it. We all have our own attempts at becoming acceptable. You know, when I, before I was a, a well, even still as a believer, my whole thing was being cool. I don't just mean hip and trendy, although I tried to achieve that. Not sure if I achieved it, but I tried it. <laughs> but being cool means to be unaffected, neither up here nor down there. The, you know, the, the worst disaster in the world can happen. You can just go, oh, yeah, it's a bit of a bummer. The greatest thing in the world can happen. You go, yeah, that's all right. See, unaffected. 
And when you affect that kind of position, it keeps people at a distance and they don't discover who you really are. They don't discover the frightened little boy that's behind that fig leaf. And we all do that with different things, with our intellectual ability, with our earning power, the car we drive, whatever it is. We all have our own attempts at becoming acceptable to the world. And Adam and his wife had attempted to make themselves acceptable, presentable. But they were already beginning to rationalize out of the wrong tree. It's wrong for us to be naked, so we need, we need to make ourselves right. You know, my whole thing was, it's wrong for me to be John McDonald. I need to make myself right. I need to make people like me and accept me. And, and so I have to change who I am. I have to put on my fig leaves. I would never have expressed it that way, but that's actually what was happening. So what happens is, God the Father takes Adam's fig leaves from him and his wife's, and he puts them in a cloak of animal skins. Genesis 3.21 says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is hugely significant. Adam, the sinner who has refused to repent, has a love encounter with God, his father. When Adam sinned, it changed Adam. It changed how he approached God. He no longer came into his presence to walk with him and say, Wow, Father, that's amazing. I never thought of that. Oh, you're amazing. You're just wonderful. Instead, he was afraid. This father who loved him, who provided a safe place for him, who provided everything he needed, was suddenly someone to be afraid of. What had changed? Adam had changed. It changed his thinking. It changed how he viewed his father. And it changed how he approached his father. What it didn't do was change the father. That's quite plain. Adam's sin changed Adam. It did not change God his father. But it changed how he viewed him. It changed how he approached him. It did not change how God viewed him or how God approached him. God came to the unrepentant sinner and I guess he must have put his arms around him in order to get that cloak on his shoulders. The Hebrew language says that Adam made an apron for himself of fig leaves. But it says here in Hebrews 3 that God made a cloak of animal skins and clothed him in it. And so I guess to put the cloak around him, he must have put his arms around him. Does that remind you of anything else in Scripture? A father putting his arms around his son to put a cloak on him? Luke 15 is just the story of Genesis in the first century. The son who's changed by his experiences, but the father who remains the same. And so this father in the garden that Adam knew before the fall was still the same father after the fall. But Adam was not the same man. His wife was not the same woman. And I can imagine Satan just whispering in their ears, you better run and hide. He 
you'll be really, really angry. You disobeyed him. You better, you better not be here when he gets here, Adam. It'd be wise, wise, to run and hide. In fact, why don't you put on these fig leaves? Because then you'll blend in and he might not see you in amongst the trees. You're like, look at me, I fit in, I belong. And we all do that. We all want to fit in and belong. And so we read the books that other people read. We listen to the music that other people listen to. We dress the way other people dress. We worship the way other people worship. You know, we do all of these kinds of things to fit in. And you know the, the wonderful thing? We see such a demonstration of love, not in a place of repentance, but in a place of brokenness and shame and failure. And the Father comes to him and says, I love you. And this cloaking thing is very significant. We don't understand it until later in, in, during Jesus' day. There was a practice in Hebrew culture and in Roman culture where a father, you know, in those days kids didn't live long or they would grow up and they would be quite sickly. And so it wasn't always a good idea to say, the firstborn is my heir. So a father would wait until he knew which of the children was going to be the strongest, fittest, you know, the best suited. And then he would decide which one of them would be his heir. And when he had decided, he would take them to a public place and have witnesses and there would be a table with a toga on it and, and a ring and a, a cup and various things. And there would be a feast. And so he would stand before everyone with his son that he'd chosen. could be the youngest, it could be the eldest, it could be the middle one. It could have been an adopted son. And he would take this cloak and place it on his son's shoulders and say, this is my son whom I love. And then he would go back to the table and get the ring and put the ring on his finger. And this cloaking was saying, this is the one who will inherit everything. This is my heir. This ring is the ring of authority that marks this person as my heir. It's interesting, isn't it? What did Lord, the Lord say over Jesus at his baptism? This is my son whom I love. As he clothed him with the Holy Spirit. We are clothed with Christ, aren't we? We're cloaked with Christ because we are co-heirs with him. We see it in Luke 15. That, that's what the father was saying to the son. It's what Elijah was saying to Elisha when he threw his cloak around his shoulders. And everyone said to Elisha, Oh, your master is leaving, your master, your master. But when Elijah was taken up, what did Elisha cry out? He didn't cry out, Master, Master. He cried out, My father, my father. And when God put this cloak of skins around Adam's shoulders, he was saying to him, You're still my son, and the human race still has an inheritance in me. Wow. Where is the angry God punishing the sinner? In the midst of shame and brokenness and failure and embarrassment and humiliation, God comes to the sinner and says, I love you. You're still mine. He was still offering relationship to, the, to, to Adam. Adam is the one who walked away from relationship. 
But so why was he put out of the garden then? Because we all know that story. That was the punishment for sin. Yeah, God was nice to him and just before he hit him with this smacking blow of punishment. But let's look at why he was put out of the garden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 through verse 24. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take, take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So, to prevent that happening, the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. That's pretty serious stuff. That's the purpose for the man being put out of the garden. Not because he sinned, not because he disobeyed God. You know, the Lord didn't say, because the man has disobeyed us, he must be kicked out. He says, now that the man has changed like this, he can't be allowed to reach out his hand and eat the fruit of the tree of life and therefore live forever. And so we have to put him out of the garden and we have to stop him from ever getting there. Why? I mean, if Adam was, had lived forever, if he'd eaten from that tree, he'd be alive today. If you went to, up to the Scottish Highlands, you could meet him. That, you know that's where Eden was, don't you? Are you not aware of that? No. Well, uh, that's a story for another day. <laughs> Alistair knows what I'm talking about, don't you? <laughs> But can you imagine what would have happened to Adam if he had been living all of those years? Thousands? Depending on how long, how old do you believe the earth is? For six or ten thousand years or ten billion years? I don't know, but long enough for sin to have driven him insane. Think Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Look at what evil does to him. How it destroys who he is. It destroys his personality. It destroys his mind. So that he even forgets his own name. And the Lord looks and sees, if the man eats from the tree of life and lives forever, this is what he will become. And so to save him from that fate, I need to put him out of the garden. To protect him from insanity and despair and hopelessness and shame and everything else, I need to remove him from this environment. And it's so painful that they don't walk out, he has to drive. In fact, he doesn't drive them out, he drives the man out. That's what the scripture says, after he drove the man out. No mention of the woman. I'm not, aren't I? After he drove the man out. But it was an act of love. You know, I didn't understand when my mum sent me to those elocution lessons that it was an act of love. I thought it was just some weird, warped, alternate universe that I'd been transported into where this woman wanted me to say, how now, brown cow? (laughs) Whatever whatever turned you on, missus. (laughs) 
but my mum loved me so much that she sent me into something that I did not understand or particularly enjoy. But she knew what it would do for me in the future. And God in his love looked ahead in Adam's timeline and thought, I can't allow that to happen to my son. I can't allow that kind of madness to come upon him. I can't allow that kind of corruption to overtake him. I can't allow him to become so filled with despair that it drives him insane. I need to save him from that. And the only way I can do that is to put him out of his place of safety, security. The only environment he's ever known. A place that has been love, where I've been love to him. And now suddenly he doesn't understand what I've done. And I can imagine Satan walking with him, whispering in his ear, I told you he would do that. Remember I told you he did it to me? Remember he put me out? Remember I told you he put me out too? And it might seem strange to you that the man and the woman spoke with with Satan. But Ezekiel says that before he fell, before he became proud and everything else, he, he was in Eden, the garden of God. It's amazing. Read Ezekiel 28, verse 12 through. We read in that that Satan was in Eden, the garden of God. He was a familiar presence to Adam and his wife. And so they would probably have had conversations with him before. But on this occasion, this was after he had been kicked out. And so he's been carefully crafting a way to destroy the image of God in mankind. And he's still trying to do that. And yes, the result was that Adam and his wife began to view God differently. Began to respond to him differently. Began to withdraw from him out of fear. You know that you know yourself when, when you commit some, some sinful act in your heart or your mind or, or in, in deed. What happens? You stop reading the Bible for a few days. You don't have prayer times. You, your quiet times fall away. God hasn't moved. But we withdraw from his presence. Because we're afraid of what might happen to sinful me. Because there's this underlying thought that God punishes the sinner. And so I need to do something about getting my act cleaned up so that I can come back into that place of quiet time and prayer and everything else. Just like Adam and his wife did. We live with the same misunderstanding, the same skewed view of who he is. We still approach him warily and with fear, just the way they did after the fall. All of this is a result of the fall. It's not because he has changed. It's not because he has become an angry deity. He has always been and still is a loving father. We have not understood that. We have misunderstood him. We have misinterpreted a lot of his doings. We look at the Bible and we think, oh, that, that's really cruel. Well, yeah, from a child's perspective, it does look that way. But I can't see as far ahead as he can. I can't see the bigger picture like he can. And I'm learning that I'm just a child. And even if I can't understand it, even if it doesn't look like goodness to me, I believe he's still that good father of the garden. In fact, he even says in Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you are not destroyed. You see, all of these prophets and kings and everyone else who spoke for him, as Paul said, we know in part, we prophesy in part. 
That includes Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Nahum and Obadiah and Micah and all the rest of them. They only saw in part and prophesied in part. That's a scary conclusion to arrive at. And so they spoke the words of God. The, The scriptures are the words of God, but how they were presented were through the lens of a man's heart. I mean, even the Apostle Paul says that we only see in part. We only prophesy in part. He's talking about himself as well as the rest of us. And it's because we've built everything on this foundation of misunderstanding. We've built everything on this foundation of fear that came out of Adam's sin, that changed Adam but did not change God. And as I began to see this, I began to understand that his, he, his, his reaching out with the cloak around Adam, that was him saying, I, there's still relationships, son. I've not closed the door to you. But when he was put out of the garden and he didn't understand, he thought he was being punished, Adam began to close his heart like I closed my heart to my, my biological father. Because he, thought, he doesn't even like me anymore. He doesn't want me in his presence. He's, he's kicking me out. And so we've built all this theology and doctrine and everything else on that same misunderstanding. God punishes sinners and I need to do something to make him happy with me. And so we, even, even the whole thing of the cross has become about judgment, not salvation. You reject Jesus, God's going to get you. <laughs> you see, the cross was not about dealing with humanity. The cross was about dealing with sin. Jesus defeated sin and death on the cross. He didn't defeat humanity on the cross. It was sin and death that he dealt with. He was not suffering your punishment in your place. What he did was he took all of that sin, not the sins that you committed, but the sin that is the... the, the power at work in this world. And he took it all and he brought it to the cross and he defeated it there. As a public display that says to humanity, the door is still open for a relationship with your father. I had read this story hundreds of times. But it's only as I've begun to taste his love that the eyes of my heart have been enlightened to begin to see the hope to which he has called us. And it's not a fear of punishment, it's a hope of inheritance. The inheritance that is with all of the saints. He is a father who loves you, who has always loved you from before the foundations of the earth. And he has never changed He has always remained the same, but our understanding of him, our view of him has changed because of what Adam did in the garden, because of his sin. And it's just allowed Satan to take control of the whole world. Paul talks about that, doesn't it? He says that he is the prince of the power of the air. He is the spirit that is now at work in those who are rebellious. In other words, those who are lost and outside of the kingdom are under the influence of the power of the prince of the air. 
the one who whispered deceit and lies into the ears of the woman and who led them astray out of the love of the Father into a life of judgment of right and wrong and good and bad and living out of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Becoming wise in our own eyes, following his corrupt wisdom. And this whole revelation of the Father is about taking the cross to its natural conclusion. It's not just that you get saved from hell. If that's your vision of salvation, it's too small. It's not just that we get our sins forgiven and go to heaven. If that's your your vision of salvation, it's too small. It's so that we can come through that doorway that is Christ. He said that, didn't he, in John 10. I am the door, I am the gate through which the sheep come. And he's saying, I'm the door into the the life of love that the Father has for you. But so many of us have stopped in the doorway, afraid to venture any further. And he wants us to step through the doorway, come into this place where we begin to discover who he really is. That we don't need to live in fear. We don't approach him with fear and trembling, but with excitement and joy. And yeah, little kids do live in awe and wonder at their dads until they realize that they're better at things than their dads are. But until that point, they're great. (laughs) And he wants us to come as those little children who just in awe and just think, wow, that's the fear of the Lord. Wow. Wow. And receive his love. Very simplistic, but the gospel is. We've just complicated it a little bit. Hmm. You've been listening a lot. I've been talking a lot. Maybe we could do a little, maybe a half hour soaking or something. Yeah. Process some of what the fathers maybe have been saying to you. Yeah. So make yourself comfortable, find a space in the floor if you want, or on your